Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now several months into the Trump administration, and activists have scored some important victories in those months. Yet there's always more to be done, and for many people, the question of where to focus and how to help remains. In this series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I'm Sarah Jaffe, your host. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. I'm a, a freelance journalist and writer and uh, who writes about violence and guns and Amer- in American culture and politics, and I'm also an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So we had talked before we got on this call about how hard it is to actually have a discussion about guns and gun violence and mass shootings in the framework of sort of resistance. And so to start off with, I thought I would ask you a somewhat open-ended question about the discourse that happened after these mass shootings and the political demands that are, are sort of assumed on both sides, or maybe not on both sides, but like the lack of political demands on one side and the um, political demands that are sort of assumed by people to the left of center. Sure. Um, like, I, I think the the, the thing I start the, the thing that I um, that's really striking to me in the wake of all these mass shootings is how, and, and I over I've been doing this for for many years now yeah. is realizing how much of what people articulate as their immediate political desires are really about just like this is what I would like the world to be otherwise. Right, like I would like to have a world in which this doesn't happen. Like I, I would like to have a world in which yeah. no gun violence. And it's and, and there's a temptation in that space to immediately in, endorse certain policy propositions, or rather, you're so wedded to that outcome that people who are otherwise very self-reflective leftists wind up sounding a lot like proceduralist law enforcement, national security Democrats or even mm-hmm. like, what I call moderate yeah. Republicans. And so yeah. the thing, to, if we want to frame this in terms of resistance, what I think the way to think about resistance and gun violence that's the most sort of like helpful is to actually resist the immediate framing of it and, and try and come up mm-hmm. with a different handle on it. Yeah, and that's a really tough thing because, you know, we we are unfortunately horrifically sort of used to these things happening now. And we know the political sort of spots we're supposed to fall into, and people tend to talk as if there is, like, a fully sort of fleshed out, quote-unquote, gun control framework that is only being held up by a Republican majority in Congress or something like that, or only being held up by NRA donations. We don't actually have that at all. That's exactly right. I mean, like, there is some way in which, like, again, like, it's immensely emotionally satisfying to, for example, and, and necessary politically, right, to, to like, to, to, to see when liberal journalists share, you know, such and such a congressman got $10,000 last year from the NRA. Such and such a congressman right. got fifteen, And that's, that, that, that's, you know, that's, that, that, that's just positive of how corrupt 
our and, and uh, the character of regulatory capture, like our our system is. But on another level, if that were all that was at play, then and also it's not a lot of money, right? That's a couple dinners at a DC steakhouse. Uh, the answer <laughs> would just be like give that same pro- give that same congressman or congresswoman twelve thousand dollars, give them sixteen thousand yeah. dollars, just outbid the NRA. But clearly something else is going on because that's not that's not happening. And even if yeah. you were to have that money, and there are anti-gun forces out there yeah. that are fairly well money, they're not doing that. It doesn't seem to work. Yeah. So the trick is to have yeah. yeah, and um, one of those people who is ostensibly sort of in this gun control space is Michael Bloomberg, who is the mayor of New York under the stop-and-frisk regime that, you know, was ostensibly, again, about guns that the whole justification for a racist stop-and-frisk policy by the New York Police Department was to find guns. And, you know, so Michael Bloomberg has literally all the money. He's like the 12th richest person in the world or something like that. He could easily buy some congressmen if it was about money. But the policies that he would put forward as, quote-unquote, gun control, again, are concerning, to say the least. That's exactly right. And so, like, what I'm sort of begging um, our leftist audience to sort of do, and, and, like, is to, or rather, there's a way in which, like, the moment guns enter the mix, people have this immediate, like, aversive or really enthusiastic response one way or another. Mm -hmm. And people... And actually, that's actually been do- documented by psychologists, right? Like, I hold up right. a photo of a, of a gun in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, like a cognitive psych lab. People are going to have a reaction. It's going to be one way or another, and then they may later describe it as one way as, as something. But they're mm-hmm. going to like their pulse is going to rise. They're going to have these various strong. It's a super over overcoated object. Even saying the word does stuff to people. And yeah. the thing is, we have to. Particularly, there are a lot of us who have very sophisticated politics about things like policing, about things like misogynistic um, violence, about things like uh, violence perpetuated against um, like sexual and gender minorities, right? And the trick is to understand that the phenomenon in the landscape of gun violence is a organic continuation of the broader landscape of other kinds of violence in this country. And just because guns are in the mix doesn't mean that we should suddenly endorse carceral solutions that we wouldn't for other things, right? So the trick is is to not fall into the trap of that immediate desire for a nature response. Yeah. And, you know, we, we... we have this conversation now, and I was um, I was in Iowa giving a talk yesterday and sort of ended up talking about journalism, but ended up talking about this issue as an example over and over again, that, like, we've gotten to the point where, like, just a regular old mass shooting, which I think is four or more people, isn't even spectacular enough to get national news coverage anymore. It has to be something like this thing in Las Vegas, which is literally, you know, the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history. Um, we we only have these conversations, it seems, and we're not really having a conversation, I guess we're having a sort of, like, war of statements. Um, but we only have any of this when there's something so horrific that people feel forced to respond. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it, there's something like, the thing, I think that, like, that's also worth bearing in mind, right, is, 
in fact, I like two two concepts that I want to like to have people feel more like intellectually limber about, but also like capable of sort of thinking their own way through emotionally, are are gun violence on the one hand and mass shootings on the other. Right? Yeah. And um, you oftentimes see in mainstream media, liberal or otherwise, statements about gun violence or mass shootings or data, even numbers, about both those things that if you push at them will reveal some really striking agenda-driven political sort of blank spots or omissions. To take one really mm-hmm. good example, there are a lot of people, a lot of a lot of journalists who will cite figures on gun homicide that exclude killings by police. Which again yeah. seems to be a, a problem. Or another thing, and this is another thing like really, really I I, I want to beg everyone to walk away from 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 embracing a knee jerk way what are the benchmarks that we apply to what the U.S. should be like? And I frequently see people say, well, the U.S. shouldn't be anything like other OECD developed nations or wealthy nations. And oftentimes those sample sets, and you see very illustrative graphs, will, will show a really marked gap between, like, the U.S. and Scandinavia. But tellingly, right. they always exclude Mexico, which is an OECD right. developed state and which gets most of its guns from us, right? So, so the question is, like, yeah. what are we obscuring by, and what are we gaining politically by comparing ourselves to states that we don't really resemble versus ones that we actually really do? And the answer is a type of erasure of the real political asymmetries of power and, and racial difference in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. It is very interesting. We because we use those same metrics, those same sort of comparisons when we're talking about healthcare, which is obviously incredibly relevant when talking about gun violence and gun deaths, and we'll come back to that I'm sure several times in this conversation. But we use those same references to sort of, you know, Western European countries when talking about healthcare systems that we also don't have. For sure, like like basically states like and, and, and like states that are fairly that have a much higher standard of living overall, that have a much lower index of inequality, that don't have uh, the anywhere near resembling the same sort of cyclical problems that are produced by a revolving door prison apparatus, that don't have massive mm-hmm. underground economies like. You know, the drug market, which is basically only enforced by those in the states and not by, like, so, 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 so when we, there's, there's an odd way in which we keep on wanting to be something other than what we are rather than looking at what we actually are and can't be. And that gap is, I think, present in the gun debate in a way that it is in healthcare is probably the other. For example, but I'm hard pressed to think of any other sort of domain of public discourse where we we look to we look to these benchmarks that are nothing like where we are. And I have yeah. think the political dividend is just to erase the realities of inequality and violence that we otherwise are very aware of. Right. Yeah, and it, it's the piece that you wrote um, at N plus one in response to this latest mass shooting was sort of to point out that the thing about mass shootings that is horrifying to the average person who doesn't have to worry about the sort of more everyday gun violence that happens in a lot of places 
this is the moment where it is sort of equal, right? When there when there is a random person shooting random people on the street, then there is nothing in our various systems of inequality that can protect you. Precisely, and that's the and and this actually goes even to the definition of this definition that I want us to like tease apart. The definition of mass shooting itself is a moving target, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on if you, for example, you ask the FBI what constitutes a mass shooting, I think it's three or four more people are killed in a single setting by one right, shooter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you if, if you were to ask a newscaster, uh, you know, a well-intentioned person, not necessarily someone who's deeply cynical, they tell you it's a spree shooting in a church or a school or a college campus or a business park, right? And yeah. there's a way in which mass shooting then becomes as a sh- and so like what that means practically speaking is that even from um, is it from a certain standpoint, if you have like 17 people shot in 15 minutes, none fatally, in a block party in New Orleans, this happened two or three years ago, that is quote unquote technically speaking not a mass shooting. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. certainly not a mass shooting that's reported as such in the mainstream media. Right. Yeah. So, so the question then becomes like, how do we think about this other category of gun violence in a way that accommodates um, these spectacular acts of violence? Uh, in, you know, as in Vegas, as in Sandy Hook, um, as in so many other places, but that yeah. also doesn't take them as the except the, a radical exception from a norm just because they happen more often than not to involve white people or wealthy people or people who, quote-unquote, and this is the implicit logic, shouldn't expect to get shot. So I'm, I'm literally, we're having this conversation. I'm in the Chicago airport right now. Um, and, you know, Trump has used Chicago in particular, and obviously, like, the Chicago has a racialized connection to President Obama, but it also is his sort of example of a horrifically violent place that has a lot of guns. And his response to that, which is an applause line at, you know, his ongoing campaign rallies, is to, like, threaten to send in the police or send in the military. And so, you know, we see this kind of response regularly to the idea of gun violence from, you know, from Trump, but also from, you know, Democrats who run cities like St. Louis, um, which is ongoing, undergoing another round of protests that have been really undercovered right now. This idea that, like, you know, the response to regular, quote-unquote, regular gun violence is to just, like, arm the cops more. And then the response to spectacular mass shootings is we need gun control. Yeah. And that's and, and that's sort of the it's, – it's a weird cognitive dissonance because, again, people who are otherwise extremely intellectually sophisticated vis-a-vis things like – the war on drugs or just occupation-style policing will not seem to question, you know, who is going to be going door-to-door collecting the guns if we want to do an Australian-style buyback, which, of course, we'd never do. But, like, if you want to take away all the guns, what's the mechanism? And I'm I'm not talking here, like, I'm not trying to bog us down on the policy, but just being like, do, do, do we actually think that the enforcement of that will not in and of itself partake of the same sort of horrible injustices and and, and unnecessary violence that our other mechanisms of enforcement do. The literature frequently talks about, there are frequently comparisons that are drawn in a lot of the literature and scholarly literature between guns and drugs insofar as that guns, like a lot of drugs, 
are things that people, people quote unquote, feel passionately about as a phrase you encounter, but also that are small and easy to conceal, right? Mm-hmm. And so just thinking about it materially like that, you're like, oh, this is going to mean searches of people's homes. And, and, and when you consider how easily a lot of yeah. people co-signed, as you said, uh, Bloomberg stop and frisk just because yeah. it, it was guns. I think in the right. context, if we said we're just going to stop black people because they may have drugs, so a lot of those liberals are like, no, 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 but it's because it's yeah. done. Suddenly we're like, okay, we'll do it. Go for it. And, yeah. you know. Right. right, and it's, it's you know, the we saw John Lewis, like of all Congress people, John Lewis leading this sort of sit-in sit on the floor of the House for including, you know, no-fly list data in, you know, gun background checks or whatever it was. You can explain exactly what it was better than I can. No, yeah, it, it, it was, like, it, it was, um, it was, it was a no-fly list, like a no-fly, no-buy, right? Yeah, and yeah. It's, um, it's just, so at the point at which, like, you know, like, that basically means that if you're in any of several highly opaque and incredibly faulty and constantly metastasizing government databases... And racist. You you can't fly and you can't buy a gun and and just it's it's um it's it's yeah I won't I, I have profound respect for it, but it is one of those points where I'm like yeah. is this the best that we could hope for which is namely quote unquote gun control that ex- that basically is just another vector for expanding the security state and I, I think the, the job of leftists is to demand for something other than that yeah well and you know I was reading I was in a hotel for the last couple of days I was reading the USA Today that you know you get free in the hotel. And they had interviews with the people at the gun shop that the guy in Vegas bought his guns from. And they were like, yeah, he passed the background check. He had never had any, you know, criminal offenses. And you think about, like, the the most common predictor for this kind of gun violence is domestic violence, which is one of the least likely to be reported violent crimes. Mm -hmm. Violent crimes with big air quotes around it. But you know what I mean, right? That, like, the... When we're talking about a, a, a warning sign like domestic violence that is just highly likely to be not reported to the police in the first place, it would not show up on a background check of a lot of people. You know, we have this just this question of like background checks. Okay, people are talking about background checks. Background checks has got to be the thing. This guy passed them all with flying colors. And we're hearing now from his partner several. Like, I, I don't know if you saw the, the article that were coming out this morning before she had flown back from abroad. Like, they mm-hmm. people doing like shoe leather reporting went to the local Starbucks where they got coffee, and they were like, and, and yeah, like, yeah, where they immediately. Oh yeah, he's the guy who treated his partner like trash every morning. And so, like, it is a it, again. This is goes to that point where it's like. Gun violence, whether it be mass shootings or partner murder, is on an organic continuum with other kinds of violence in society. And it, a, a way to think about it is that if we want to think about like what guns do in those spaces that are already saturated violence, saturated with violence, is they basically precipitate or accelerate lethal outcomes. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so whatever our, polit- our politics are going to be in terms of our responses to gun violence as a category, it has to be coherent alongside our consciousness of those other kinds, broader kinds of violence, rather than just trading one kind of violence for another. Because Lord knows it's not like police don't have a problem with domestic violence in their homes. So Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the things, we were talking about money a little bit earlier, and one of the things that you were watching on the day of this in Las Vegas was, of course, the gun stocks going up. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if you could talk about sort of why you started watching that, but also that that part of this whole equation. Yeah, so it's like it, 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 it's and this again points to that broader that theme where it's like this type of violence and this type of culture of violence is related to broader cultures and broader structures of violence. Arms as an industry, more broadly, thrives on people using arms. Uh, yeah. When, when, when they're, and, 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 and I think this is another thing too that a lot of um, specifically white liberals should not view with contempt. Um, when people feel unsafe, when there is the possibility of physical harm coming to you, and particularly when you can't trust the authorities to vindicate your own desire for safety and that the authorities may be a source of threat, people make decisions that, from the perspective of those who are more secure, may seem foolish. They may arm themselves. They may choose to arm themselves. But the reality is, is that from in that space, I have a very hard time begrudging them for making that choice. And yeah. so, yes, the desire to, like, be the person who pulls a gun on a mass shooter and save yourself is belied by reams of uh, data that say, you know, that's not going to work, you're only going to get killed by yeah. cops, etc. But people are still in this hard spot where they have to make a choice, and so they buy guns. Um, yeah. And there is a way in which the arms industry, um, which exists thanks in no small part to a lot of federal government subsidies, we should say, um, yep. caters to that, but there is also a way in which um, simply focusing on the manufacturers, which reap a manif- a, 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 an outrageous profit, or focusing on the NRA, occludes the fact that people are buying their product regardless of the Byzantine politics of lobbying or the like, the subliminal messaging of ads, etc. They're doing it because yep. they feel unsafe, and unless we have a politics that it can address those material and emotional conditions of unsafety, people are still going to be buying guns, and it's kind of hard to blame them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this is all, um, it gets around to the question that we sort of keep bringing up, and we haven't talked at all about men, but I guess we should yeah. probably talk about men. Um, but we we broadly don't have a society that makes people feel safe and protected. Um, And obviously, as we mentioned a little bit about domestic violence, and and I think, you know, it's worth noting, as we say, that, you know, most of these mass shooters are men of various backgrounds and ethnicities and, and whatever. But when we talk about that, these those things sort of point to, like, the bigger, scarier social questions that we have to grapple with on a level that doesn't have a bill we can pass through Congress to abolish patriarchy. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish we could, but I don't think we can. Yeah. It, it, it is. It, it, it's fascinating. Well, it's, so, so one of the things I do is I, I just read a lot of gun-centered publications. I read a lot of, of industry materials, and I read a lot of the scholarly lit. And there is uh, – it's striking how, like, super gendered it all is. Um, yeah. And, there is a way, you know, and, and I'll, 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 I'll cape for, like, psychoanalysis and, like, Freudian and not, like, stuff for, like, to the end of my days. And it seems, like, crude to say that for a certain sector of the, the populace, guns are, you know, like, just their big penises. But then you hear what people had to say about Hillary Clinton and what they wanted to do to her with their guns. And I won't get granular enough, but there were a lot of talk radio hosts who said some things that you're like, oh, okay, that really is a penis. Or you read, uh, you see an ad from, like, Bushmaster just prior to the Sandy Hook shooting, and the ad was very literally like, get your man card back, buy an AR-15. And I, you couldn't, if that were in a, if that were in like a, a, a shitty satirical novel, you couldn't have a more on the nose. Hey men, do you feel castrated? Here, this buying this gun will remasculinize you. Um, but that's it's out my there. My favorite, it's, it's, my favorite was the politician who had the bacon on the gun barrel, and I don't remember who it was. Ted Cruz. It was Ted Cruz. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was Ted Cruz. It was, it was like the, the image of like uh, of, of, of Ted Cruz's like blobfish face eating steaming bacon off the barrel of like a fully automatic machine gun is just like the sizzling and the grease is going to haunt me to the rest of my days. Like, and the thing is, like, it's. And this also, like, this, this implicates, for example, a lot of discourse on the left where it's like, well, we just need sufficiently militantly armed leftists. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe we do, and I think we, and we, I'd be happy to talk about the role of, of weapons in leftist organizing over the past century, and that's not something to be diminished. But on another level, that's not a solution because I have yet to see a single study that say that leftist men are less likely to shoot their partners. Um, and so, like, we yeah. have to that too. We are with the yeah. not even talk about we yeah. got politics that does something about that. Yes. Yeah, and so, you know, so we've been talking a lot about what doesn't work and which solutions are not are, are sort of too easy to reach for in these moments. Um so I do want to turn to questions of what can be done because I think rightly in moments like this a lot of people are like, We need to do something. And they want to do something, and I don't want that to be support whatever Michael Bloomberg is selling this week. (laughs) So, but yeah, so what are some of the things that you have been covering, that you've talked to, that you've, you know, seen that are doing something that seems positive about the broad issue of guns and violence and healthcare and safety in America? So, so the big, the big theme right, is this two-part. One is just, like, resist the frame. Like, the, the Democratic Party does not need you to support expanding the no-fly list in order to give the NRA what it deserves. The Democratic Party can take care of that at themselves. They'll keep doing it. Like, that's the one thing that they'll do is sit in for. They're willing to go to bat for it. Instead, it, instead even of, like, getting psyched about the, they're falling into the wormhole of, like, gun control debates on the national level, think about gun death on the local level. 
get local, think about what groups, who in your community is the most vulnerable to winding up dead because of a bullet. And when you start asking that question, you see across the country some really surprising grassroots um, coalitions coming into being or being operated for some time that are doing really substantive things that are helping lower that toll of violence. Now, um, this is, by the way, this is not, this is, I'll talk about that and then I also want to, like, I, there is a point here there, which, like, some national voting, calling assembly stuff does matter. But, like, yeah. in terms of local stuff that's happening, like, it, a lot of this depends upon where you, and this, like, this implicates two things. One, there's, like, where is the activism happening? And two, what's the room for actual interventions that are meaningful, right? And the simple yeah. character of how, I won't get into the grand, like, two inside baseball, but the way in which gun laws have, taken shape, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, means that most interventions that are meaningful are happening on the state or even more often municipal levels, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That's legislatively, but also in terms of activism, such that, to give some examples, if you're in a place like Chicago or Louisville, or mm-hmm. St. Louis, or any of numerous municipalities where the major driver of gun deaths is gang, quote-unquote, gang violence, but basically viol- retaliatory violence between social sets that are seeking, that have no, that, like, course of vindication for law, there are all, there are, there is a robust panoply of activist groups that are doing this. So, for instance, so for one example, masks, mothers against senseless killing, I think, or um, looking into what the mothers of the movement, which is an organization of people who've been killed, uh, mothers of, of um, various um, high-profile uh, young black men and women who've been killed by vigilantes or police, are doing. Like um, there, there are church groups that will do things like, you know. Um, Patrolling the streets at night and talking to people, which actually yeah. surprisingly has a real effect. There are um, simply like there are a variety of church groups that will also do things like gang outreach. General, some of them not involving the police, which is particularly helpful. Where they're like, you know who the young men are in your neighborhood who are likely to commit an act of violence, and when you hear through the grapevine that there is something that has happened for which they're going to retaliate, someone from yeah. the church calls them up and says, "Do you really want to do this?" And that stops it. That's and yeah. that doesn't necessarily involve the police. That doesn't necessarily involve. Um, you're a local senator, and it doesn't involve the Democratic Party, but it actually can be meaningful. And so a good place to go if you're in an urban setting is to find out what the local churches, specifically the black churches, are doing. Um, now, if you're in a more rural space, likely the most leading drivers of gun deaths are suicide and domestic violence. Um, and, and there, again, there are surprising activist groups and surprising coalitions that are emerging. So, for example, in New Hampshire uh, and in Kentucky, there, uh, there's, a, there's something called the Gun Shop Project, which is actually gun store owners talking to people who come into their shops, being like, it, people, they've been trained by medical professionals to look for signs of people who are near suicide, and then all they do is ask them do you really want to buy this gun, or do you want me to hold it a couple days? And that yes. has been demonstrated to actually lower suicide rates. Now, wow. again, like, 
it's weird because it's like part of part, a lot of people are like, oh my god, gun shop owners, they're icky. And sure, like you can feel that way. But at the point at which this person is taking a sobbing woman or man away from the counter, being like, you don't need this right now. How about you come into the back, have a cup of coffee, and we call your doctor? That's a real intervention. Right? Uh-huh. And so that's happening. Um, likewise, then there's some similar, I, I, I can provide some for some similar stuff that's happening, too, in terms of domestic violence as well. Um, so the trick is to sort of, like, look to where the look to where the people are, rather than taking your notes from the national level stuff, look to where people are suffering locally, and there you'll also find helpers who are trying to deal with it. And and the trick is, again, if you're not necessarily buying into the, like, pro-gun, anti-gun frame, which is focusing on the people being hurt, you're going to find some surprising allies. And that may not be the same, that won't necessarily change things nationally, but it will make a difference where you are. But I, I should also say, like, there is, like, there is, like, a, there is some room for straight-up voting and for calling your senators and for all that. But, like, the, the trick is, the, it, it's a tra- there's a way in which this is, like, when mass shootings happen, they're a trap. Like, obviously, they're, they have, I'm not saying they're false flags. They're very, very real. But I'm saying that discursively, politically, we have this immense desire to do something in reaction to them that feels emotionally proportional to the horror that they've given us, right? And when you see 60 people dead, it's an understandable yeah. emotionally view. Like, I want to take down all those guns, and I want to melt them into the biggest statue ever. Like, that's fine. But there is a way in which, given how the news cycle works and given the way in which, like, parties make money, whether they be the parties like the Democratic Party or the Republicans or parties like the NRA in the smaller piece sense, um, simply embracing that impulse actually just perpetuates the same sort of status quo. So the actual reality is that there are a ton of things that can, again, lower gun deaths that are not necessarily the same as gun control. So, for example, the need for triage centers. In Chicago, on the east side of Chicago, there have been activists who have been able to create, like, like basically you need what's called a level one trauma center in order to vastly increase the likelihood that people who have been shot are just not going to bleed out. And that is an investment of money and infrastructure that has to come from some sort of governmental body, and that's something that people can fight for. Um, Ditto, too, for various, so there are, there are various national-level programs that will do that type, that will foster that type of gang intervention stuff. You know, you evaluate them individually as you get to them because they do involve some relation to the police. But there are things that, the trick is to, if you, if you want to create national-level change on this, you need to, unfortunately, check your very understandable desire for single dramatic gestures in favor of viewing the broader phenomena of gun violence as a disparate collection of individual at-risk groups, each of whom can be helped with different targeted interventions. Which is, yeah. it's, it's, it's not like, it's not like something that like, again, like you're not going to see people with signs being like different specific targeted interventions against gun violence now, but that's actually what's going to fix it in a way that um, simply being like ban all guns is not. That said, we do need a political, like, if, if, if politics is in this weird way, in this de- depressing space, the art of the possible, um, that's constrained, the art of the possible is constrained, the horizon of possibility is constrained by the horizon of what's imaginability, and there is the fact that we don't have a lot of voices out there being like, ban all guns, immediately moves the discourse rightwards and moves the discourse towards people, you know, this 
process will not change. So if there are people who want to go out there and be like, Dan, all done, you know, I may not agree with you, but like that is something that will help shape the discourse and make it more robust and meaningful rather than just the tired sort of cycle it is. And it is a tired cycle. I mean, I think, you know, I guess one of the, to wrap up, I think, the thing that, you know, we would say is that, you know, when we point out the structural causes of this, they are the same structural causes that lead to us not having a universal healthcare system. They are the same structural causes that are, you know, causing all sorts of the inequalities that we live with every day. And so to deal with everything, to deal with gun violence, again, sort of big air quotes around that every time we talk about it as an issue, we have to deal with inequality on micro and macro levels from the fact that the south side of Chicago didn't have a level one trauma center to the fact that, you know, we don't have a functioning healthcare system in this country and the Las Vegas, you know, officials are setting up a GoFundMe to help the people who were shot in this moment, right? And it is a it is a way in which we're like it's understandably morally frustrating that on this issue, I wind up finding the exact same depressing structures that we otherwise confront. And the realization that there are no simple and easy answers, but there are answers that require work and time and affect. Um, but on some level, like, why would we expect otherwise? Right? There's a way in which the expectation for radical change within the system is just a way of the system's never going to accommodate that. Um, and so, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'll show up for the dictatorship of the proletariat that's going to eliminate gun violence through, like, breaking up yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. But after yeah. that, we need to have something that's other than just a sort of, like, a knee-jerk um, affective utopianism that just gets hijacked in the favor of a really deadening status quo. And on that note, how can people keep up with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Pat Blanchfield. Um, yeah, I've got links there. Uh, yeah, freelance. So, you know, i got a site that's Cart Blanchfield with an E and then my last name. It's a good pun. Not mine, someone else's. But, yeah, I, I'd love, I'd love, to, I, I, I am a deep admirer of your, your podcast and of your work and, 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 and deeply sympathetical with your audience. So anyone who wants to follow me on that space there or both those spaces is more than welcome. I'd love to have you. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.